from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded Thursday, March 28th, 2019. This is episode 97, Shiny Titanium Trojan Horse. Welcome to Download, where we cover the most interesting technology stories of the week. I am your host, Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Mr. Jason Snell. It, uh, what interesting happened to this week? Apple just did everything. Yeah. They, just, they announced any type of service you could imagine. Yes, it was, it was a spectacular cavalcade of services, and that's going to be the first part of the show. And then at the end of the show, Stephen and I will round up some other headlines, but we've got two people who pay attention to Apple stuff and buy Apple stuff and are here to talk with us about Apple stuff. Uh, they're our guest this week. Aline Sims is here. Hello. Hi, I'm so excited to buy an iPad Mini soon. So, yay! Um, yeah, you should also offer a podcast guest as a service. Maybe uh, just putting it out there, sir. Everybody's got a service now. You could you could be a service too if you wanted to be. Uh, yeah, this appearance will be fifty dollars, oh, please. Mm, I take can, it all back. Can anyway. I pay that monthly? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also, uh, uh, D- David Sparks is here. Hello, hello. I, I think if I did the uh, podcast ga- guest as a service, I would definitely have in-app purchases involved. Mm, interesting. Oh yeah. yeah, in in show purchases, I suppose. It's, uh, it's like yeah, there you go. Would you like a joke here? That'll be an extra ninety-nine cents per hot take. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Exactly right. Well, <laughs> so. Uh, and of course, Aline and David are both hosts of podcasts here on Relay FM. You can find them. There's a little field in our uh, CMS that says, "Is this person a Relay FM host or not?" And the, that field is full today. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we should get down to it. The most interesting stories of the week, and they uh, we we do start with Apple. So much Apple stuff to talk about, but we got to start with Apple's TV service, their video streaming service that they've been working on for almost two years now since they hired their two TV executives. Zach Van Amberg and uh, Jamie Ehrlich, names that I have not put faces to until this week when they stood on a stage and said, hey, we bought a bunch of TV shows and here they are. Um, And uh, it's called Apple TV Plus and it doesn't have a price and it's coming out in the fall. And we saw a sizzle reel trailer and otherwise, basically, they brought stars and producers and directors on stage to talk about how their shows make us, should make us feel, do make us feel. I don't know. I felt like I was in the Oscars for a minute while that was going on. Uh, But let's start with the Apple TV service, because Apple TV Plus service, because I think that's the one thing that most people are talking about. And I'm wondering how the pitch hit you. And uh, how you're feeling about uh, this as a potential thing that somebody, you or somebody else, might actually want to pay for. Aline, what do you think about Apple TV Plus? I have really mixed opinions about it because on the one hand, I think it's really smart for Apple from like a a financial shareholder perspective to try to step into the space with their own original content. Uh, But on the other hand, Apple does not have a stellar track record with services. And so I'm kind of iffy about that. And their TV offerings uh, previously over the last couple of years have kind of been lackluster. 
So I am, I, I have, I have concerns and it's just kind of like, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I, th- I think it helps. They do, as demonstrated, have, uh, TV veterans and star studded casts for, um, for a lot of the shows that they've ordered. So I, you know, hopefully they have enough, uh, have enough TV veterans to kind of back them that they can be successful with this. But when I was listening to these show pitches, these actors telling, telling everyone about the shows, I was like, I don't think any of these are for me. Uh, so that's going to be, I don't know. I mean, I'll watch Jason Moma do a lot of things. So you know, <laughs> we'll see, but I just, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, but I, I feel like I also fall on the skeptical side of things often. So I'm willing to give it a shot, but I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm iffy. Yep. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there, um, I will say that the guys who are running the show now are not responsible for any of Apple's previous attempts that's to do true. video. So that's I think true. that's why they were hired. It's like, Oh, carpool karaoke plan of the apps we need to hire professionals so yeah uh but you know yeah in the end do the shows interest you is a big part of like will you put down money every month in order to get apple's tv service that's a uh, there's a lot of competition there david how did uh, apple tv plus hit you uh you know i i'm very interested in it and i you know we've all been seeing the rumors of this i mean this is the the worst kept secret in a very long mm-hmm. time because hollywood right hollywood leaks differently than the asian yeah. supply chain for apple it turns out yeah <laughs> and uh, but you know the the thing in my mind and the the hurdle they had going in uh, was can they compete in a crowded market? Because I feel like, you know, Disney's got this thing coming out where they're going to have all of Marvel. They're going to have two Star Wars series. Uh, HBO and Netflix are already so powerful with the stuff they've done, you know, and we all are already hearing about subscription fatigue and these problems. And Apple doesn't have a back catalog like Disney does and some of these other companies. I mean, Disney just bought all this Fox stuff, so I'm assuming that's going to be a part of it. And by the way, I get all my knowledge about this stuff from listening to you on Upgrade, so some right. of this will be repeated. Good. But but the um, I, I do feel like, are they going to be able to compete? So the question in my mind is, they were marching the stars out with a, a very strange presentation. That that's a whole other discussion. I wasn't, I didn't like the way they did that, but. Uh, you know, they're bringing out show after show and they kept focusing, like as Apple does, their theme was, we're going to tell great stories with great storytellers and, you know, somehow ours is going to be better. And, you know, I think they've got the right people and they're saying the right things. And I think now it's a question of, um, you know, we didn't see any trailers. We, we don't really know if this stuff's going to be any good or not. But uh, it, to me, it's certainly not a given that this is going to be a, a huge success. But it seems like they're they're trying to do the right things. Yeah, I wonder the the way Apple usually uh, announces products is at least it's plausible when they say, "Look, only Apple could make this. Uh, it's got this unique thing." And here it seems like they were trying to use that playbook, but. It's just fundamentally not true that only Apple could make a TV show, right? Like literally, yeah. they were just in bidding wars with with Netflix and other places, and these are the shows where they they bought, they got to buy it. They had the highest bid, basically. Their, their cash allowed them to be created. But I, 
I don't believe that you can sell these shows as revolutionary in any way. And yet that's kind of Apple's go-to thing. So everything came across as being a little bit pretentious. And li- like I said, like you're reading an introduction to a, an Oscar category or something like that. Um, yeah. And we didn't see anything except brief clips in the sizzle reel in order to judge it at all, which may be as designed, quite honestly, but it was still kind of frustrating. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I am curious. And, and also going into it, I mean, one of the big things I wanted to know is what's the pricing model? Are they going to yeah. use? I mean, they don't have the back catalog. They've got right. a few shows. Are they going to charge the same amount everybody else does? Are they going to give it away to get you into the system? I, and uh, that that's a big piece of the story in my mind as to how successful it'll be. You, you brought up subscription fatigue and we're at a point where people are picking one thing over another. So they've got to price competitively. They can't price, you know, it can't be the TV equivalent of 400 extra dollars to get a terabyte SSD in your computer. You know, they can't charge $50 (laughs) a month. They probably maybe not even $20 a month for this. And, you know, people like me where we kind of pick and choose, you know, we'll watch CBS all access. We'll subscribe to that while Star Trek is actually airing or being released. And then we'll, we'll back off on it. Um, and if it comes down to a choice between watching a Star War or watching a, um, an Apple TV original, I'm probably going to pick the Disney package so that I can watch more Star Wars. Um, so. It's interesting because they don't have any established properties that they're launching with. So I'm not sure. Again, they're using that star power to try to entice people to come in. You know, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon and Oprah and all of that. And I'm sure that will get a lot of people. Um, but for me, I... <sighs> I kind of want comfort food. I kind of want to go to universes I know. And I feel like a lot of people are like this where they're like, yeah, I want to watch, I want to watch Star Wars or I want to watch Star Trek or I want to watch, you know, Game of Thrones as well established at this point. So I'll get that HBO Go subscription or whatever. And so I feel like that's maybe a thing where people are going to be like, well, I need to continue watching the things I already watch and this new stuff can wait. Yeah. Subscription fatigue is a, is a real thing. And there is a question. I mean, I feel like they only need to have a break, a breakout hit where there's something where everybody's like, oh, you got to see this. And they're trying to, they're placing a lot of bets, right? It looks like there are a, a lot of high profile breakout hits here. They do have um, Sesame Workshop. They have Steven Spielberg and Amazing Stories, which is an established brand, although I would argue that the weakest of possible established brands is an anthology series that was, you know, with a director who's viewed as the creative uh, person behind it because in fact, you know, they hired producers to work on it and they're doing short stories and like, it's not really an established brand, even though it sounds like it. So I, I agree that that's a challenge, but they only need to have like one buzzy show or two buzzy shows to get people to start to think, Oh, I really want to see that. I, I think, but that's the bet they're making right now. Although I have to say, I have fond memories of amazing stories. And, and just after the announcement, I went back and watched a few of the old ones and they're a little campy, but hmm. man, they're good too. I, I hope they follow that kind of, um, the model they had, or maybe that's not, maybe it needs to be more dark in these days, but the, uh, but I really liked it. So I was glad to see it on stage. I was more of a twilight zone guy. And of course, uh, that's on CBS yeah. <laughs> all access in like a week. I think that that show is going to be the, the new twilight zone is going to be on CBS all access. Steven, is this a, uh, 
Is is this a potential buy for the Hackett family? This uh, this service, or is it not? I think it could be. We have Netflix and Hulu, and some of these shows do look interesting to me. Uh, so, yeah, I, w- I want to see the trailers. I assume that they will roll those out over the course of the summer and fall. And yeah. we'll know the the shows a lot better by the time they're actually here compared to what we know now, which is basically basically nothing. Something that – when you all are talking about the subscription angle – they didn't really complete that story because we don't know pricing for everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot of talk going into this event that Apple was going to have a bundle where you could do Apple News Plus and this and the game thing. And maybe you get a discount if you pay for more than one. And I still think that's in the cards. At least I hope it is because I don't want to spend 60 bucks a month at Apple. Yeah. But uh, until we know what all that is, I'm, I'm trying to hold – trying to reserve judgment and, and really see what their story is as a complete services package right now, we just kind of know the component pieces and they haven't told the big story yet. And so I think I'll be looking for that uh, later this fall. Yeah. A couple other things as a part of this announcement, Apple TV, the app, which it's been pretty clear for the last couple of years is the centerpiece of Apple's TV strategy, whatever, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, And even though Apple said famously that the future of TV was apps, they also introduced their own TV app and tried to use it as a unifier in the Apple TV interface. And that has stepped up even further. There's a redesign of that. They're going to begin reselling other people's streaming services inside, which is something that other, uh, like Amazon is the best example, Amazon Prime channels, and now there's going to be Apple TV channels. Um, It's an interesting... Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that works because you will have they they prominently showed Amazon and Hulu content in there even though Amazon and Hulu won't be available as Apple TV channels so it sounds like there's sort of two ways to get into the TV app the existing APIs that they built for external app developers and just buying the service right within the app which is super convenient that's how I do CBS All Access is inside the Prime Video app and it's it's very convenient so um, so yeah I guess the future of tv is one app now uh, david you know have you spent much time with the tv app do you think that this is a uh, progress on apple's part to kind of move away from the multi-app experience and, and push everybody inside the apple tv app proper I, I think it makes sense um you know we cut our cable about a year or maybe over a year ago so we have two TVs in our house, one in the kitchen and one in the living room, and they both have an Apple TV, and it's HDMI 1. So my family of nerds and non-nerds has been very uh, much using the Apple TV app. And and they were, you know, once I showed them, like, you want to go to HBO, you got to go find the HBO app. And that was fine, and everybody works fine with that. But I think if you put it all inside one application, it's going to be easier for people generally to use. Uh, the problem is on the edges, though, like Netflix isn't going to be part of that. And Netflix is a big deal to a bunch of people that I live with. So, you know, I, I don't know. You know, it, it seems like they're dancing around with this stuff. Um, it, it really probably just comes down to content. But, um, you know, why not? I, I don't really have a problem with the change. Well, it, it also is solved by... Um you know, there's another story we're we're going to talk about in a moment, which is about where the TV app is going. And like, if you need to make part of Apple's TV experience portable, you can't bring like all your Apple TV apps with you, but you could potentially bring the main Apple TV interface with you, which is what they're doing. Um, Aline, do you use the Apple TV? Do you and the and the TV app? 
Yeah. Um, we haven't had cable in years, maybe since, well, basically since 2010 or so. It's been a very long time. And most of our TV watching is just less expensive for us to buy shows in iTunes than it is for us yeah. to have a cable subscription. Um, and we rely a lot on Netflix. So I am disappointed actually that Netflix is not a part of this because again with that subscription fatigue because we're subscribed to so many things and varying things at different points in in the year it's like where do I need to go to watch this show is this uh is is the CBS all access do I need to go to like the PBS app do I need to go to Netflix if I were also subscribed to Hulu that would be another complication and so having everything where you can just find it and watch it is it's removing friction um, because it doesn't matter ultimately it doesn't matter who owns the show or who owns the property that you want to watch it matters that you can watch it easily if you can't find it you're not going to watch it so I think this is a good thing for like me personally and for consumers that we just don't have to keep track of where things live we can just go watch it yeah, I should mention too that that I, I talked about it, the TV app on Apple TV, but um, it's also on iOS. And I find myself, I'm not using the TV app on Apple TV as much, but I am using it more on my iPad, which is interesting. Apple has has made it increasingly convenient to rather than going to like the the uh, the iTunes app or something like that, like all of your contents in the TV app. That's where you watch iTunes purchased or rented videos and other stuff pops up in there too because you've got apps that are linked to it and it suddenly it, it, the switch flipped for me in the last six months it has become much more convenient as an ios user to just go to the tv app um but you're right aline like netflix doesn't want to be part of a, a complete nutritious breakfast right netflix is like all inclusive netflix wants you to think that if you're going to watch t- it's not tv it's netflix right so they don't want to be part of a larger group and let apple kind of like put their shows next to other people's shows. It's not in their best interest to do that. And I totally understand that. Unfortunately, that means that uh, what might be a nice unified interface for us as users, we're denied because Apple and Netflix have good reasons not to play ball with each other. But it's still Mm -hmm. frustrating. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's the consumers. They always lose, don't they? In the end. Although we, that's okay. We'll just watch TV and we'll be happy, I suppose. Um, uh, speaking of which, uh, televisions and little sticks that you stick into televisions. Uh, this is another big thing that we saw coming, kind of, because there were a bunch of announcements at CES about this. But this week, Apple made it official that it's got deals not just with the TV providers it already announced, but it is uh, making deals with Roku and Amazon. So the uh, basically, that's the majority of the low cost, uh, or, or regardless of cost, it's the majority of the market of little boxes or sticks that you attach to a TV, and now they're a connected TV. And uh, so the Roku line and the Amazon Fire TV line, I have a TV with Roku built in. I assume that that's going to be covered by this too. And all of these devices are going to get the TV app, which means all of these devices uh, will be able to put Apple stuff on any TV for, I think, you know, Roku, uh, there, there was a 10 
1080, like a standard HD thing that I bought for my mom a few weeks ago. It was $29, and you can get a 4K one for $49. So way cheaper access to Apple content than ever before, because before you had to use use the Apple TV, which cost a lot more. And I'm really excited about this. I have some questions about, like, does the Amazon Prime stuff show up? on other devices is it interconnected that way because does apple's tv app have access to that data or does it only work when it's on on an ios or apple tv device where that other app is installed you would think that on a fire tv at the very least your amazon content would show up in the tv app but maybe not but still i'm really excited that there's just access to apple stuff for people who don't want to spend 150 bucks on a box that's like it's very exciting on the uh, Apple website where they talk about the TV app, way at the bottom, there's this section that, hey, this is going to other devices. And Apple has this like line art style of showing what devices look like. And the one for, for like streaming sticks and streaming boxes are literally just rectangles. It's like, well, why did you need to draw those like it looks just like a box also available it made me laugh on rectangles this this artwork yeah the future of tv is rectangles steven it's true yeah it's it's a good point yeah but this is good right i mean i i I imagine we've all got people we know who uh who are reluctant like not who's going to buy an apple tv right like some of us will but it's a very small percentage of this market because it is the most expensive of these boxes and so this this is apple saying we're going to get Uh, You know, we're going to let everybody have access to our stuff. And it's not just the streaming service, right? I believe this means that they'll also have access to iTunes uh, TV and movie purchase and rentals Mm -hmm. on all these devices. It's smart. I mean, how how can if you're going to spend billions making these shows, you should make it easy to watch anywhere. I mean, that they it's a little bit of a a jujitsu move for Apple that's always trying to keep things in Apple. But Mm -hmm. here's one where they need to make an exception. Yeah, there was some conversation on Twitter about like, why, why is Apple doing this? And other people replying, well, it's just like other things. It's so you buy, you know, Apple hardware. And that's not true with this. This is a different thing to your point, David, that this is not to drive iPhone sales. I mean, no doubt that they, that would be a, a nice bonus, but it is a uh, it is a different type of business for, for them now. And it's important to recognize that change and it being on a $29, you know, Roku stick you bought at Costco like says all you need to know. Yeah, they sold all the iPhones. I mean, everybody's like hung up on that. You know, it's like, well, they're not focusing on their traditional hardware. They're doing this instead. Well, you know, they they got to find somewhere else to prove they can make more money. Yeah, the growth story, which I mean, as a as a user of their products, a lot of times the attitude is, well, you know, why do they need to grow? They're doing great now. They're already huge. And the answer is they're a public company and Wall Street wants growth. They want to see growth and they've got a huge amount of money to invest in things to lead to growth. And a lot of that is if you look at their R&D line, a lot of that is being invested in new hardware, things that we might see over the next five years. But services is an area that they think they can grow uh, now and they are growing it really rapidly right now. And so that you know, they're, they're Apple's a big company now. It's it's much much larger than it was when Steve Jobs was in charge of it. And they should be able to do both, right? This is not the case where uh, Zach Van Amberg and, and Jamie Ehrlich really ought to be designing the next iPod something brain iPod. I don't know what. I just said iPod because it's not a product. Uh, maybe maybe they should be the ones bringing the iPod Touch back. Well, no, they're TV executives. 
of course not. But uh, but Apple does, you know, th- this is a new Apple, and th- that also means that they're trying new stuff, and they may not know how to do it right, and they may fail. It's entirely possible. Um, there's many more services for us to talk about, by the way, uh, on this podcast, which is sort of a service, but you don't pay. You just uh, get it every week for free. How about that? And one of the ways that uh, you get it for free is that we have ads like this one for ExpressVPN, because, you know, sometimes you want to protect the data that you are sending out over the internet. The internet is a big, bad place. And there are lots of different ways, lots of different vectors for people who can look at your data. Uh, if you're on a Wi-Fi connection that isn't encrypted, they could look at your data. Your cell carrier can look at what you're doing and follow your behavior. Your cable carrier can do the same. And, you know, who knows what else is insecure out there on the internet. VPNs are great because they encrypt all of your data. Uh, you can't see, they can't see what IP address you are, where you are. Um, and ExpressVPN lets you do all of that. But uh, what's great about it is that it's super easy. Their apps run in the background of all of your devices. Uh, you can turn on protection with one click and then you're safe. You're safe to surf on that public Wi-Fi. You're safe from being spied on by your internet provider. Uh, you're safe from having bad people steal your personal data across the wire. Uh, ExpressVPN was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I have used it. It is super easy on my iPad. That one tap, and I was completely secure, and my IP address and location completely obscured. Uh, for less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN and protection that I've got. So if you're ever using public Wi-Fi, if you want to keep the bad guys away from your data, use ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash download podcast to learn more, protect your online activity today, and find out how you can get three months free by going to expressvpn.com slash download podcast. That's expressvpn.com, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash download podcast. I'm not going to spell that part. For three months free with a one-year package, thank you. ExpressVPN for supporting download and all of Relay FM. Okay, uh, Apple News Plus was as as rumored was announced. This is real. It is shipping. It has a price. It's basically ten dollars a month, and that gives you access to a bunch of premium content from magazines and some newspapers, all inside the Apple News app itself, mixed in with all the other stuff that's in the regular version of Apple News. Uh, it's just all in one app, and. Uh, it is. Uh, it was enabled by a software update that came out on Monday. So Apple News Plus is the latest in a long series of ways that the technology industry is claiming that it's trying to save the thing that it almost killed, which is publishing and journalism. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious if any of you have had a chance to test drive Apple News Plus. They offer a, a, a trial uh, month for free. Um, David, have you given Apple News Plus a spin? Yeah, I, I went ahead and signed up. Since we're on family sharing, now the whole family, the wife and two kids, are both using it as well. And overall, I mean, it's Apple does this kind of cool thing where they show you the best example in the keynote, <laughs> and then you open the app. And some of them are really cool, like they showed, and some of them are just like flat PDFs, which look terrible on the yeah. iPhone. But the uh, but you know, it's 
it's cool. Uh, we've got access to a lot of magazines for $10 a month. This one will probably stick with us. I haven't downloaded it yet uh, because I heard those reports of the PDFs. I want to give it a little bit or subscribed rather. I want to give it a little bit of time until we see if more publishers are on board and then, you know, give it a shot. Uh this is another thing where I'm like, well, Apple, you've tried this with news. So is adding, you know, the magazines into the mix really going to change things appreciably? I'm not sure. And honestly, I'm wondering if a lot of what we're feeling is less about the inconvenience of picking up a magazine and reading it. And then what do you do with it? Do you hold on to it and take let it take up space? Do you recycle it? Do you donate it to a shelter or whatever? Is, is is that the problem or is the problem that we're just not interested in this format anymore and that going to something bound and curated like that, figuratively bound, I guess, is is not what we want. We want more variety mm. in the things that we're consuming. And so I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but it's going to be interesting to see if if this helps, if it plays out, I hope it does. I, I Journalism and a free press are important and that that applies, I think, to Marie Claire as much as it does to the Wall Street Journal. So I really want to see tech companies help figure out how we make sure that journalism and journalists can live and eat and continue to do the things that they do because it's important. We need it. Stephen, do you, you take this for a spin? Yeah, I've been checking it out. I've have not been a big Apple News user up until this point and so uh, part of this is me just experiencing Apple News for the first time really and there's something about having news and especially magazine content like just divvied up in the way Apple News does it that I just don't find just super interesting. Like I'm also the kind of person who list, listens to a whole album front to back, so uh-huh. That's all you need to know You're about. You're an old I, soul, an old soul, and uh, you don't have shuffle, you know, in, in magazines. That's kind of what this feels like. So I, I don't know if it'll stick for me. Uh, it is kind of, I mean, it is cool to like dip into these magazines that I haven't read in a long time by reading things by writers who do really good work, and so the exposure is good. But I, like everyone else, definitely have concerns about the business side of it for the the journalism industry, for the publications that are in here. So I guess we will, uh, I guess check back in when that free trial ends and see if I've, if I've subscribed though right now, if, you know, if that description was up tomorrow, I would, I wouldn't renew. I don't think. Yeah. I was reminded this week of why I don't like Apple news and I'm hopeful that maybe they will, um, that they got this thing out because they wanted to get this service launched, but that there will be a new version of Apple News in the the next version of iOS and macOS because the interface is kind of a mess. Um, but I also have I'm I'm kind of the opposite of you, Stephen. I'm I'm actually frustrated by the fact like first off, half the magazines seem to be in PDF according to Federico Vitici, who did the the counting himself, uh, and that's really disappointing. But I do think that Apple has a a major bit of leverage on the magazines that are in PDF only, which is to say it's they're not going to be promoted by Apple's curators uh, because there's no way Apple's curators are going to promote a page in a PDF, right? The, the, they're going to only promote magazines that are exporting their content in the Apple News format, which is 
I think the right thing to do. Uh, the where where I break down is that those magazines are in these and newspapers these kind of silos where it's sort of like here is an issue that you can read and occasionally I will want to do that like I occasionally listen to an album from front to back but I also subscribe to Apple News categories and that's actually one of the things I like about Apple News and so my question is just how well are they how what, you know are they going to do the surfacing of content and the tagging of content out of magazines into categories because that benefits me i'm not sure it benefits the magazines but you know as a consumer of this you know if sports illustrated drops an issue and they're in apple news plus i want all the baseball articles to show up in my baseball category because i'm looking at the baseball category every day i'm not i don't want to think oh i wonder if there's a new sports illustrated i need to go look there and find the articles i'm interested in and i know that's scary if you're a magazine because it's talking about atomizing your content but at the same time like i'm much more likely to read this magazine content if every one of those hundred plus texture you know apple news plus magazines that's exporting as apple news has tagged all of their baseball articles and they all show up in my baseball category i'm much more likely to read those articles from magazines that i wouldn't even think of reading so for me that's where i'm kind of like it, it's just kind of a mess right now and i'm hoping that it it all gets kind of simplified and and clarified because i like the idea of having more content sources but i don't like the idea of having to um you know manage a bunch of little magazine interfaces in order to you know i want to read this magazine now i want that that's an option but i want i want more i want that the magazines to kind of explode their content and put it anywhere i don't know if that'll happen or not because the magazines may say to apple we don't want that but apple's got a lot of leverage too i'm dealing with a weird issue right now where you know i i don't have a problem with social media we're going through this great um unplugging where everybody's talking about how they're trying to do less social media. That's never really been a problem for me, but what gets me wound up is Apple news for, you know, a couple of years now I read Apple news and I, I realized I don't sleep as well when I read Apple news before I go to bed, because, you know, you go down these news rabbit holes that just get you upset. Um, I'm wondering, yeah, I don't know. It's an experiment. What if I just read a magazine? What if I just read hmm. the New Yorker in the evening rather than, than take myself into that crazy news world? And uh, that's something that I'm really looking at with this new release. That's kind of how I approach Twitter, too, honestly. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens with Apple News Plus. I, I think there, there are a couple of milestones, the, uh, the end of the trial period and whatever at Apple announces in June at the developer conference, it would be nice to see some steps forward in terms of the Apple News interface experience, because I think that this is sort of grafted on and uh, there's more to be done there. Um, we, we are um, we, we, we've talked about so much stuff and we still haven't gotten to uh, Apple Card and Apple Arcade, which we should probably talk about. Um, I'm really interested in the game thing in Apple Arcade. This seems to be Apple's way of potentially um, tweaking the business model of the App Store, which has you know rushed to free-to-play with in-app purchase games, and it makes it very hard to make a, a pretty uh, independent, oftentimes uh, single-purchase game experience, and this seems to be Apple kind of admitting that the app store is not as successful for those kinds of games. Um, and, and, you know, I think this has gotten the best reaction of any of the services that Apple announced. It seems like people are, uh, thinking that this makes sense, but, um, how, how about all of you? Are you gonna, uh, are you intrigued by the idea of paying a monthly fee and just getting access to a hundred plus games, 
at at your at your leisure at your whim uh yeah i i i really am i am a little worried from a developer perspective how how is Apple going to curate the things in this offering? What is there going to be a submission process? Like now there is a submission process where you can basically nominate your app to be featured in the app store. There's a form to do that. So is that going to be the same for app developers? Is this going to help or hinder indie developers? Uh, you know, those, those kinds of questions. We don't have the information on that yet. Like we, one, not the experience, but two, Apple hasn't released the details of the terms from like right. a consumer perspective. I am super excited to have a bunch of games at my disposal. Again, we get into the, well, how much is this going to be every month? Would I pay $10 a month? I, I don't know, maybe. Would I pay five? Yeah, probably. Would I pay more than $10 a month? Maybe for a limited run if there was something I was really interested in playing. So again, we we don't have a ton of information available, but kind of the the concept of it is is great because games are something where... Costs can add up pretty quickly, especially when you're looking at, you know, kind of more premium games. And then in-app purchases have kind of soured me on some of the titles that I used to really like. So I I don't know. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, for me, um, I'm not a huge gamer, but the games I do play are exactly the kinds of games they demonstrated. You know, I've I've never been into the games where you got to collect coins and, you know, the the in-app purchase model doesn't work for me. Um, so these look like fun games. I, I don't know. It, it's kind of like the TV content. I just, you know, I think they're saying the right words. Now I just want to see, you know, see the goods, you know, and, and maybe, maybe not. I don't know. There's such a history of Apple um, and its developers, despite the, you know, oversized novelty check that Apple carts out of like how many billions of dollars they've uh, given to developers, you know, as part of the rev share of this. Um, the, uh, there is a perception that it's hard to make a living in the Apple App Store and that some of that is based on Apple's rules. Um, I was encouraged by the idea that Apple strongly suggested that they basically are funding the development a lot of, of a lot of these games, that they're paying up front for an exclusivity period and potentially in advance. I mean, this is implied, not stated outright, but an advance against royalties to get these games going. And I don't know, that seemed like the most developer-friendly thing I've heard from Apple in an awfully long time in terms of tweaking the business model and providing money for development of these games rather than just sort of saying, hey, make a game and you t- you reap the benefits of our store, which seems to have been Apple's much more laissez-faire attitude toward developers up to now. They seem to, um, and it, it's led people who follow the gaming industry more closely than me to say, maybe Apple actually gets how games are produced now. It's encouraging, I think, to to have that kind of positive implication anyway. But I I agree with Aline that the the proof is going to be when the developers tell the stories about how happy or unhappy they are. And before we get to the rest of the show, let me tell you about our sponsor. Second sponsor this week is ISL Online, a reliable and simple to use remote desktop software app. You can remotely access and manage devices to provide on-demand IT support, and it's very easy to use. If you work in support, you know how tricky it can be to help a client with a problem. It can take ages to navigate someone through the problem on the phone or an email. The worst. Instant messages back and forth. Yuck. Save yourself all the hassle of frustrating phone calls and endless emailed screenshots 
with ISL Online. You can access Windows, Linux, or Mac remote computers in less than three seconds, so you can help your clients the moment they need you. You can even access any remote computer using your iPhone, iPad, Android phone, or Android tablet. You can set up permanent remote access to just install a remote access agent on any Windows or Mac computer. And for your client's peace of mind, ISL Online is fully compliant with strict security industry standards. Take the hassle out of IT support. Get a fully featured trial by going to islonline.com slash download FM right now. That's islonline.com slash download FM. Thank you to ISL Online for their support of download and all of Relay FM. All right, Apple Card. Apple Card is uh, hmm, interesting. Like, <laughs> not the most. Apple sold again. Apple uses its standard script to sell it as the most revolutionary credit card ever, and uh, I think it brings it on themselves because you know then everybody is saying, well, it's really not. Well, actually, it's not revolutionary. And I look at this and I think, does it, does this need to be revolutionary, or is this Apple sort of saying, why not us? We could do a better experience. And we've got the home field advantage of the iPhone, so why don't we do it? And I don't know, viewed through that lens, this looks like a pretty good product. It's never going to be the product for people like Brian Chen at the New York Times was tweeting about how he is an inveterate credit card points guy. And he finds the best deal and he probably has multiple credit cards for different deals and uses them for different purchase types and all of that. And, you know, Apple's never going to compete with that. There's always going to be a better deal. But it does strike me as being maybe a pretty good deal. And maybe that's all it needs to be is like a, a deal that's easy and and safe and offers some features that are convenient. And maybe that's all that this thing needs to be. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, it, it, Apple Card, any future Apple Card users? We all have iPhones. So we, we could sign up at any moment right on our phone. Aline, you know, did, did you react positively or negatively to the idea that Apple is working with Goldman Sachs to make a credit card? <laughs> Um, I have really, I have mixed feelings about it. The, what stuck in my craw is, um, it, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the presenter, but she was standing up there talking about it was a low interest credit card, blah, blah, blah. Mm. It's 13%, it, 13.24% APR. Yeah, it is a credit card. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, you know, don't, don't tell me it's low interest. Um, but, there are things about it that really excite me. I am, I do my personal banking with Simple, and there are a lot of things that kind of Apple is doing that seem similar to Simple, um, in terms of like reporting and being able to look and see where your money is being spent. And I think that is great. Um, actually being able to read where my transaction was <laughs> will be really nice because, you know, as they pointed out in the keynote, uh, Sometimes it's kind of gibberish when you're looking at your credit card statements. And, you know, those, those kinds of things are really nice. What, what I'm curious about is if this will actually fuel Apple Pay adoption at places like in the U.S. Kroger. So my most convenient grocery store is a Kroger band, branded grocery store. They do not accept Apple Pay. So I have to take my card out and, you know, stick the chip in the card reader. Or when that doesn't work, do the magnetic strip thing. Is this card even going to have a magnetic strip um, for, for the physical card? I don't know. So I think that's really interesting. I think the fact that you get... Uh, the rewards is like basically cash back. Um, 
it, Apple pay cash back, um, is, is nice in a lot of circumstances. But I'm, I'm iffy about it because there are so many places in my neighborhood. The coffee shop I go to a couple of times a week doesn't take Apple pay. Um, so is this going to drive adoption or is it not? And how is Apple actually going to handle the cases where it doesn't? Like if I only have this credit card and I want to use it in my neighborhood, am I going to be able to do that? Um, yeah, a metal it, car- it does. It does have the magnetic stripe. It does have I, the I was strip. looking as you were speaking to make sure. And uh, but you get less cash back if you use it as yeah. a regular card. Like the incentive is to use it with Apple Pay. I mean, I think you're totally right. This is like a shiny titanium Trojan horse for Apple Pay adoption. Yeah, and. It, it- I would love to use this at, at QFC as my grocery store. So yes, please. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting way to approach it. Um, we already, we have an Amazon uh, credit card through Chase. So we get, and we put everything on that. Um, so we get points back that we can spend on Amazon, which is, I think, another conversation entirely. Maybe my husband and I will switch and do an Apple card. Maybe we won't. Um, as long as we can pay it off every month, it's not the end of the world. But if we get in a situation where we can't pay that off and we're being charged 13.24 to 24 point whatever percent interest on it, then, you know, that's another another conversation and then another problem we have. So I don't know. I have really mixed emotions about it. I might apply for it. Um, I probably won't, though. Yeah, I don't. You know, the, the thing for me is. I think a lot of people feel pretty hostile towards credit cards and the credit card business. I know I do. I feel like they're always trying to play gotcha with me. And if I make one little mistake, the interest rate goes sky high. And the way Apple described it, I felt like they were trying to explain kind of like when they announced the original iPhone, they're like, we're not going to have the usual carrier relationship for you. We're going to change the nature of that. And they kind of did a little bit of that with this presentation. And then afterwards you start to find out, oh no, they're really going to charge the usual credit card rates. That 13%, by the way, is only if you have the best possible credit. My guess is that a lot of people are going to be higher than that. Um, I do like that they have no gotcha fees, which they said clearly on stage. I do like it's better reporting. I, I don't know if I'll get one or not. I'm I'm not a big credit card person, but the um, I do think they're very smart with the design. I think that's going to get people to want to use it or to have one in their wallet, you know, because it looks so much nicer than the piece of plastic, and that matters to people. Um, but you know. And, you know, the the thing is, once again, we were talking earlier about Apple finding other ways to make money. It's, you know, the transaction fees for every transaction you make that that is real money. And there's a lot of businesses out there that make a lot of money that way. And Apple can, I guess, Apple's saying, why not us? Yep. Yep. It's it's a it, 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 right. It's a it's a credit card. It's still a credit card. It's still yeah, got a lot of the things exactly. in it. They probably, I feel like the the watchword for this whole presentation is they probably overdid it a little bit on the usual Apple speak in terms of we've just revolutionized this thing um, and, and made some claims like the interest rate one being a good one where they, they kind of can't back it up. It's just a credit card with some nice new features. And that's okay. Like that's not, when you frame it in a way that allows people to pick your, your statements apart, like you didn't need to do that. <laughs> you, you, you could say it's just a really nice credit card that eliminates some of these issues uh, in in terms of fees and and privacy and stuff like that and security. But they went a little bit beyond. Well, um, I, I guess I get to end this segment by saying we'll see. 
because most of this stuff is not out other than Apple News Plus. Uh, it doesn't have a price. Uh, and and uh, there's more to be told. But it's certainly going to be an interesting year for Apple, I expect, uh, if you add in what they're going to undoubtedly announce at the developer conference in terms of where they're uh, taking their platforms and re- merging their app platforms and all of that. Like 2019, I think, is going to go down as a year that Apple pretty ma- made a pretty dramatic uh, right turn <laughs> to whatever their new destination is um it'll be fascinating to watch and this this event on monday seems to have been the start of a lot of it so it's been fun to talk about it with you guys now we have a lot more coming up on the podcast but uh before we do that i want to thank our guests who do not have to participate in the cavalcade of other headlines aline sims where can people find the stuff that you do oh my goodness um well, as mentioned at the beginning, I have a podcast on the Relay FM network. It's called Originality. Um, you can find that at relay.fm slash originality. I have a business where I work with developers on the non-code side of launching their apps at applaunchmap.com. And I am also the co-executive director of App Camp for Girls, which is an organization where we teach uh, girls, transgender, and gender non-conforming youth that app development is fun and maybe not entirely what they expect. And you can find more about that at AppCamp, the numeral for girls.com. Great. And David Sparks, where can people find you and your stuff? You can find me over at MaxSparky.com. And I also make a couple podcasts here in Relay, uh, Mac Power Users. That's a, a MPU, if you go in the URL, and uh, Focused and uh, Automators. Excellent. So many podcasts. Can't stop. All right. Time for the story you might have missed. Perhaps you didn't notice this because you were too busy reading stories about Apple and Oprah. Um, Microsoft has announced uh, preemptively that uh, its employees should not waste any time making April Fool's jokes and corporate Mm -hmm. pranks of other sorts on April Fool's Day, which, of course, is coming up on Monday. So don't believe anything you see on the Internet on Monday. Um, I am all for this because... I I sort of uh, subscribe to the idea of um, leave it to the professionals. And I feel like tech companies are perhaps the least appropriate perpetrators of jokes. Hmm. So I'm going to applaud Microsoft when it says uh, no pranks, please. Okay, thanks. Uh, (laughs) Thank you in advance for not doing any corporate pranks. Uh, Are you you sad about this, Stephen? (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I, this was cute the first couple of years that Google did it alone, but it's just overdone. And, yeah. uh, you know, you can read this memo uh, that circulated at Microsoft and, uh, you know, it's like considering the headwinds the tech industry is facing today, I'm asking that, you know, we don't do any public facing April Fool's Day stunts. I appreciate this, but I believe we have more to lose than gain by attempting to be funny. That's a pretty self-aware statement and you know people look at microsoft and like oh they're the boring corporate company but i mean in in this in the era we are in where big tech companies are in the news very often for not good reasons like some things we're going to talk about in a second Mm -hmm. this seems like the 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 prudent move to say you know what we're not going to partake in this we're going to be serious we're going to respect our audience and their time so yeah like it's it's fine by me because Look, like reading tech news every day, like you and I do, like a lot of our listeners do, it's useless on April 1st because it's all just journalists covering the yeah. the funny things that companies are like, fake we got way more releases, things to talk about. Fake press releases, 
you know, <sighs> maybe we're party poopers, but I'm okay with that. I think yeah. it's time for it to. I've, al- I've always liked April Fool's Day as an opportunity to go off format to do something different, but mm-hmm. that's not the same as what the tech companies tend yeah. to do. They're they're announcing things that aren't real. Uh, there's a lot of like trying to fool you, trying to to make people pick up uh, lies, and they're not really funny. They're just kind of jerky most of the time. Occasionally they are spectacularly funny, but a lot of it is just eye rolling of uh, people who. Again, are, leave it to the professionals. So uh, I say thumbs up to Microsoft. And yes, we are Killjoys. That's who we are now, apparently. That's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, we do have a few headlines to get through uh, before we go. Um, I wanted to mention that Europe, uh, the EU, um, passed those copyright uh, and intellectual property directives. And um, we're going to have to watch how this plays out. But this is potentially really bad because it it means that the rules for running an internet service in Europe are now dramatically different from the rest of the world. And a lot of the assumptions that tech companies make about uh, content being uploaded to their services are kind of undermined by this, where it shifts the burden pretty dramatically in terms of copyright scanning pre-posting to the service, which means you end yes. up in a scenario where, um, you know, if you want to do YouTube in Europe, uh, YouTube bears all responsibility, basically, if something that's copyrighted material gets on their on their service, uh, which means that every service that allows users to upload material is going to have to do scanning, which is going to be very expensive. Um, they may need to vet the people who are posting it. And, you know, part of me thinks as a person who creates content, having, uh, you know, making it a little bit more strict in terms of having these big tech companies not be uh, loose with uh, copyrighted material is good. But the fallout of it is like there's huge overhead for any company who wants to be on the internet with, with material posted by other people. And they may not understand quite what they've done until they see that, that like the European internet is suddenly like, this is like what happened when GDPR privacy stuff came into the EU, where a bunch of sites just kind of went dark in the EU and were broken for a while. This is like that, yeah. except it's going to be much, much worse when this gets implemented because it's potentially true. And I know this seems like it's just a, a scare tactic, but I, I think it's potentially true that all video and photo sharing services basically that exist today are going to go dark in Europe. It's it's a really serious thing that they've done here. And, you know, as someone who owns a content company yeah. with with only like you know 30 people uploading stuff even at, at our tiny scale it's like oh that's not good like i don't think we're going to run afoul of this but if i were in charge of a, a much bigger content company boy i would be i would be nervous about this you know for so long there's been this balance between the provider the hosting and like service provider and the users and there's always that back and forth and we're going to talk about facebook and twitter in a second but this radically changes the ball game in a way that I I don't see uh, I don't see how somebody real big like YouTube manages this well. It's just it, it seems like a giant hurdle. And small companies will have a hard time doing it because they're they're only protected for about like three years of their existence, and then they have to follow this, which means they now have to build a complex content copyright scanning system. I, I suppose this will help somebody build a spectacularly good business at copyright scanning, but that oh, and, yeah. and take that money out of out of the market. But beyond that, I'm not sure what happens here. I didn't even mention that. 
the other thing that in addition to copyright is the link tax, which is a part of this, which is something that has been tried in different companies. It doesn't really work. Um, in Germany, they tried something like this, and basically all the publishers um, just licensed their content to Google for free uh, in order to get around it, to basically ignore this law. But the idea is that if Google News summarizes your story with a couple of lines and a link, that... Uh, Unless it's an insubstantial, quote-unquote, insubstantial amount of content reuse, which a Google News link apparently is not, they owe you money, which means that Google News may break uh, which in Europe, which is also bad for people like us, honestly, who make stories, who write stories that get picked up by Google News and other aggregators, uh, who like the, like the fact that we're being linked to so that we can get traffic. And the EU has said, no, no, no. Those links should only exist if they are licensing your content for, pe- you know, basically pennies, probably. So it's, it's again, these are these are fascinating changes because I get the motivation behind them, but it feels like these are uh, these are are laws made by people who don't understand how the internet works and don't see the ramifications of what they're doing. Yeah, it's a, we keep coming back to that on this show, and it's for an important reason. Yeah, is that laws laws are a decade plus behind reality, and that the more you try mm-hmm. to chase the the old thing, the more you're just kind of wrecking what's going on now. And yeah, yeah. Um, Another story that we should talk about is just the ongoing challenge of, speaking about people uploading content to the internet, challenge of what happens when you build your business on, this is the lesson I feel this week, is just don't build your business on letting randos upload content to your service. And then everything will be fine. But once you open the doors to the random people, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get what Facebook just did, which is after several years of letting this through, they've, they've said that in addition to sort of explicit racist groups uh they are now banning white supremacist and white nationalist groups because they finally come around to the idea that maybe those are also explicitly racist um but not to be outdone twitter has suggested that they may have a great solution for tweets that violate their standards which is to label them as violating their standards but keeping them up yeah that sounds that sounds as long as you put a little you know frowny face emoji on it this is just a little white nationalism between friends is nothing this tweet was racist i think what they're trying to do here is you know they what they want don't want to do is break tweets that everybody is linking to i mean there is truth to the fact that when a tweet gets ratioed which is you know not good when somebody posts a bad tweet they delete it and then everybody's referring to a tweet that isn't there anymore and then unless you've screen capped it it becomes you know there's there's a technical reason that i think is what behind this but still in the bottom line is sort of like it's twitter saying yes this tweet is bad we know but leaving mm-hmm. it there for people to to point at and yell at and rage at um i don't know steven i think this i think I, again i come back to the fact that just don't let random people post things on your on your business's <laughs> service like that's that's the problem is people all of these social, social media platforms would be way better if there were no people on them i think well they wouldn't be social media platforms then <laughs> oh damn it you're right well so, sorry i broke your business that's why model. i'm not in charge of facebook yeah this reminds me of what youtube was doing underneath you know flat earth conspiracy videos have a link to wikipedia or some somebody else saying actually right. the earth is round and this is all the research saying that and i just don't know how effective this sort of thing is because if you don't so if you see a tweet like that and you know it's wrong or incorrect or just terrible the label's not going to 
change your mind in that you've already made your mind up that this is a bad piece of content. But if you fall on the side of, you know what, I'm actually okay with whatever this terrible thing says, or I believe this conspiracy theory, then all the label is reinforces the false idea you have that these media companies are out to get you in what you believe, right? And we, we see that uh, on both sides of a lot of issues. So I just don't know what the benefit is. And if you're in the middle, if you're just a, a normal user scrolling through Twitter and you see that label, it's just going to infuriate you that they left the yeah. content up. Like there's no winning in this sort of system. I see the value in trying to push people toward reasonable content. I mean, this is the the uh, the issue with YouTube's algorithm, right? Is that the YouTube algorithm was pushing everybody toward um, conspiracy theories and uh, the alt-right and stuff like that. And because they were, you know, and you know, anti-vaxxing and stuff like that, where the algorithm was working because those posters were more active. And so they were pushing those posts, even though those posts, like you're looking for a video about the moon landing and you get a moon hoaxer instead, um, or you get a moon landing video that's suggested as the next play as a moon hoax person. And Google has said that they are making attempts to change the YouTube algorithm. Um, which I, I think that's good. I think the idea that if you're searching for certain topics that might come up with white nationalism, what Facebook is doing is uh, is showing you an organization about people who used to be in white nationalist groups and have gotten out. <laughs> it's like interesting technique, but I think you're right that if you're looking for this stuff, um, you know, I, I'm not sure there's anything the service can do. To, you know, they're not they're not trying to change minds, but I do I like the idea of you know, taking something that's neutral and not trying to have it become this volatile, extreme content in order to get another video view, um, you know, which is the YouTube problem. YouTube definitely has that problem. I don't know. Uh, yeah. You want to you play some video games? Because the, there's, uh, there's new Nintendo Switches apparently coming. Yeah, I'm super interested in this story as someone who does not own a Switch but is perpetually on the edge of buying a Switch. Mm. Uh, this is – so it's a report from the Wall Street Journal uh, reported on by a bunch of different places saying that Nintendo may be looking at actually two new Switches as early as this summer. So one would be smaller and less expensive with a, a focus on portability, which, you know, that's Nintendo's bread and butter, right? I mean, from my time as a kid with the Game Boy on up through uh, the DS and that line of handhelds, Nintendo does that really well. And so I guess taking the Switch technology and and its capability and putting something smaller seems like a very, a very Nintendo move. But at the same time, the report also says that Nintendo is looking at a higher-end Switch aimed at more serious gamers competing with the PS4 and the Xbox One, which the Switch doesn't do now from a, from a hardware perspective. It's just not nearly as powerful as these other consoles. And it has cost them a little bit in the types of games that you can play on it. Now, the Switch is, I think, aiming for like the middle ground right now. So it makes a lot of sense that they would want to move out from the middle to the other ends. So I'm very curious to see if they can pull this off and have something successful kind of at all points along the spectrum. Yeah, I think it's a good approach. Um, you know, their comp- their competition has been doing this too. Like Microsoft has two Xboxes. 
at the higher end and at the at the cheaper end. And it's smart. Uh, this generation of consoles is definitely an enlarged, you know, elongated one where rather than sort of breaking compatibility, it's more like with PCs. They're basically just making new ones that have higher specs and then they make sure the games can display at the lower resolutions on the on the lower spec consoles, but then look their best in the on the 4K, you know, Xbox One X kind of thing. And I, I like that. I like not breaking compatibility entirely uh, because the longer that uh, platform exists, the better for the user because you don't like your mm-hmm. games don't stop working and stuff. Um, the Switch. It, the the same rules apply right like getting a getting a cheaper switch to get people into the switch is great and also maybe even in families like having a second one so that you can you can play on two of them simultaneously that's pretty cool but there are also people who want the best like gamers want the best so um it reminds me because everything does on one level uh, reminds me of apple something something with apple which is the ipad where you know it's hard when you've got a product because you've got a bunch of different markets for it. And what Apple has done over the last couple of years is say, okay, we're going to do the iPad Pro and then we're going to do the iPad. And there are other iPads too, but like we're going to have a model that is just cheap. And it's still good, but it is it is the cheapest one we've ever made. And then we're also going to have mm-hmm. one where we push all the specs because some people want the one that pushes all the specs. And gamers are yes. very much in that category. And so mm-hmm. two switches, it's great, right? Because you are on the fence and you're like, oh... Oh, the switch is there's a cheaper switch now. Maybe I'll get that. That that would be the one I'd go for is that that lower end one. So it's exciting, and I think um, I think they could pull it off and to take the switch and say, hey, we're committed to this platform for at least another couple of years and, and entice developers with new hardware. It could be really exciting. Well, um, before we go, that was that was some headlines of non Apple stuff that happened this week. But um, I do want to leave people with a fuzzy puppy update. Um, something I've learned as the fuzzy puppy update editor here is the best place to find Fuzzy Puppy updates is on local TV news sites. Yes. Because they all want to end their broadcast with like a happy story. Mm-hmm. And that that's their, like us, they, they learned, TV news learned long ago, you want to end with a Fuzzy Puppy update. Anyway, this is a great story that we'll link in the show notes from Orlando, from Fox 35 Orlando, uh, except it's from Maine. I don't know. Basically, if there's a Fuzzy Puppy, all the TV stations will grab it immediately. Uh, but the point here is... Uh, there is a U.S. Army veteran, Christy Gardner. She is a double amputee, um, and she is training a, a therapy dog for kids in Lewiston, Maine. And the therapy dog is a uh, three-legged puppy named Moxie. That is very Maine. Moxie after the soda uh, that is very popular in Maine. And so you have a, a double amputee soldier uh, training a three-legged puppy to be a therapy dog for kids uh it could not get any cuter until you see the pictures of moxie um which is or is it or is it lucky there's two there's or does she have oh no let me get this right she's got a dog called moxie who's her therapy dog and now she and moxie are training lucky who is the three-legged puppy who's also going to be a therapy dog there's so many puppies in this story just go, there you go. Just go to the link and watch the thing. There's cute. There's a cute three-legged puppy. It's awesome. It's a great story. And again, local news saves the day because they always want to end with a uh, fuzzy puppy update. I also want to give a baseball update. <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. Oh boy. 
How do I end this Skype call? <laughs> it, it's it's opening day as we record this for the baseball season. I always used to take this as a personal floating holiday in my old job um, because <laughs> it was uh, opening day was great. Also, it was often on April 1st and I would work on April 1st projects that were not dumb jokes. And uh, I was exhausted on April 1st. But anyway, I just I thought this you would appreciate this story um, every year at uh, opening day of baseball season, somebody writes that story about the most outrageous baseball concession. And it's like the baseball stadiums compete to see what is the most outrageous thing you could offer. Um, Seattle a few years ago was offering their hot uh, fried grasshoppers. Um, Well, Texas, congratulations in the final year of Globe Life Park in Arlington, Texas, the home of the Texas Rangers. They have added a new concession. It is, a two-pound chicken strip with uh, with fries in a very long uh, container. It is called the foul pole because it's get it, it's chicken and it's mm. yeah, really long. No, I was gonna let it go, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you wanna if you wanna have a really uh, sick stomach, go to Globe Life Park in Arlington, Texas, and uh, play ball. Yay! Baseball! All right, that's it. We're done. Uh, Those have been all the headlines and more. And we will be back next week. Steven, thank you, as always, for sitting through my stupid things about baseball. Yeah, the things we do for our co-hosts. And we'll be back on Monday for our April Fool's show. Ha! No, we (laughs) won't. We won't. But we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.